Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, Pavar, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thank you very much for the invite. So we have a mutual contact in the form of the amazing Rachel Moses. And I reached out to her and said, would she come back on the podcast again? And she said, you don't want me again. You know who you need. And she pointed me in your direction. That's very kind of her. Very kind of. I'm sure she can do more than two podcasts. Easy, easy peasy. (laughs) I know. She should have her own own podcast. podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. So please could you share with our audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is uh, Partha, Partha Kaur. Um, I'm a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology. Uh, so I work in Portsmouth. I've been a consultant now for ooh, nearly 15 years now. And I also, apart from my day job, hold two other roles. One is as one of the national leads for diabetes, particularly in the type 1 diabetes technology and all that. And the other is more recent. That's about tackling racism, uh, you know, trying to get better equality within medical workforce. So, yeah, a variety of roles in the system, so to speak. And how long have you been working in the NHS? Uh, 20, oh, good question. That'll be 24 years, I think, now. And what made you choose a medical career? What were you looking for? So I think the, the clever answer probably would be to say I wanted to help people and all that. I mean, the reality is that I come from a very, uh, you know, I come from India. So it was a very, very typical sort of Asian background at that point in time, whereby, you know, in my in my family, it was very straightforward. In those days, mom and dad, you know, you got to be a doctor, got to study for medical school. There wasn't anything else. Life is very different nowadays, obviously, with so many opportunities out there. But in those days... 80s and 90s you know that was the only thing to do so be a doctor be an engineer and you know live your life so to speak so a lot of it was pushed towards it to be perfectly honest um and uh you know that's how I fell into it so to speak and during your career to date have you ever found yourself in a place where you've questioned is this career for me no, I've actually, re- I really, I mean, it was interesting you say that, but this morning there was a, I, I was, you know, I, I do a lot of social media and I saw, saw a tweet from a, I think a final year medical student who said, oh, I've heard everything that is, you know, people tell me regularly what's bad, how it's all going to be not going to be good. Can anybody tell me what is good? Well, I genuinely wake up in the morning and I love going to work. I do. I still do. You know, so many years later, uh, I, I mean, there's been lots of slices of luck along the way. But I know I, I really have enjoyed doing it um, and I've seen it as part of the role. I've grown into it. So no, I don't have any major complaints. I think I've been blessed by many things in my life and being a doctor has given me opportunities to do stuff which I probably wouldn't have been able to do in lots of other areas, I suppose. Give us an example of some slices of luck that you have received along the way. So I think the first one probably would be where I work. I mean, in Portsmouth, I'm surrounded by uh, consultant colleagues who are not colleagues, who have become family friends and my very close personal friends. And that's taken time. And I come into work. It's a bit like my sanctuary away from home. You know, it's 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 really fun, fantastic. You know, and I know it sounds like really alien if you go to social media, everything is burning and blazing away. You know, everybody, healthcare assistant, the receptionist at the desk, the nurses, I really love coming to work. And we have such nice banter, such nice relationships. You know, we always hold each other's birthday parties in the department. Every, you know, there's a chart on the wall. Who, It's just a lovely environment. So that's a huge slice of luck. And I, I think I'm more appreciative of it. The more I read, 
around, the more I hear from other colleagues, that, that's a massive slice of luck to get in that situation. So that's a definite example, I would say, to be in the position. Also been blessed to have been very lucky to have some fantastic mentors, if that makes sense, some amazing guides uh, in the course of time, people who have given me the right direction. Uh, I can give you many examples. One of them, I would say, was my last medical director in Portsmouth, Simon Holmes. And, you know, I, I had gone for the chief of medicine job, hadn't got it, was very disappointed because I was the clinical director for diabetes before that. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll, I'll step up in my local management role. And what was amazing, I remember him sort of saying to me, no, you need a bigger canvas to paint on. I think, you know, you, you should go big. Why, why are you being limited by that? I hadn't even thought about that. And that prompted the door open for me to go for a national role in diabetes and the rest of it has fallen in place. I wouldn't have done it without him saying that sort of stuff. So that's also luck. You know, you, you don't always find people like that in your lives. So, yeah. And what attracted you to diabetes? And I take it you would class that as your specialist interest. Yeah, definitely. I mean, two, a big reason behind the two individuals I'll mention. One was uh, a gentleman called Tony Zalin, based in the Midlands. The other one was David Jenkins in the Worcester. And they were around when I was a house officer and then an SHO, as they as it used to be called in those days. And uh, they were fantastic mentors. They always used to talk about, well, you know, you could be the guide in somebody's journey it's a long-term condition you know you, it's not like you're just going to solve it but you could you could guide them it's so fantastic to see people evolve with their diabetes and you can try and change their life so that always drew me towards it I love talking so I think all of those uh building relationship that, that has always been a great attraction for me so that's worked out really well if that makes sense so yeah that, that's what brought me to the specialty so you mentioned social media, and I think there are probably certain platforms, in my opinion, that attract more negativity and more frustrations or the airing of frustrations. What frustrates, what do you find frustrating within the NHS? So I, I've got a standard line I say about the NHS. This is a problem. It's not Disney, where you've got rainbows and unicorns jumping over them. It's neither Mordor either, where you've got orcs running the land, right? <laughs> It's somewhere in between. And I think it, the frustrating thing for me is that you know, in my own little space of type 1 diabetes, I've been able to make impact, if that makes sense, going forward, doing things in technology and stuff. And I see all around that lots of the discussion gets really stymied by uh, what I call ideological debates, rather than actually saying that what needs to happen. So if you, if you think about it, is the so whenever you want to challenge anything in the NHS, the first thing that comes back, oh, that's because you know people want to privatize it. Now there may be an element of it, which is absolutely right, and people need to see it's a social structure. We need to be very careful about it. But the problem is that you can't really have a, a dull conversation. So would you be would you be going around and stopping some? Should we be stopping some? Should we be having an adult conversation with the population as to what we can and cannot do with the money we have at our disposal? Or should we? Be very clear about we should go to a you know i don't know a denmark or a norway style model where your taxation really needs to go up to afford everything you want so then you have a debate which is a bit like uh well we don't have all the money but we still need everything so how are you going to do that and the fact of the matter is then again people find it really uncomfortable because people will say well the nhs is brilliant it's fantastic and it's amazing not many international data will support you with that statement number one and number two is it's not equal for everybody. You know, your color makes a difference. Your deprivation makes a difference. Data set after data set will tell you that. In which case we need to be very clear about, so those conversations cannot happen at the present moment. And I think that's, that's the problem. So um, I think those are the issues which does, I wouldn't say frustrate me. I think nowadays I'm much less frustrated with things, but I think we could do far better with what we have if we had more grown up conversations. So how are you creating change in that environment that you've just shared? So I think I have learned a couple of things. One is about creating allies, picking allies. You need to pick targets which are achievable. And I genuinely believe that leadership is not about delivering. Leadership is about uh, creating a vision and what you can do to make people believe in that vision, right? And I think that is a very, very important part. People mix up leadership with management. It's not. 
right? Management is about delivering projects, etc. Leadership is not that. Leadership is saying, look, this is my vision, guys. How many of you are with me? And you don't have to do everything alone. And I am very clear, and I've learned this. This is definitely not me five years ago. I am very crystal clear about my shortcomings. I'm very clear. I can't do that. And I need an ally who can do that for me. It's, I'm very, very straightforward about it. So, for example, and I'll tell you, I can do a lot of thinking of this needs to be the strategy, but I'm not a very detailed person. So I will need a detailed person with me to guide me and help me. And I will also have implicit faith in that person. To, and I'll go to him or her and say, tell me what's right. And I, and I, and I don't say this tongue in cheek. I learn a lot of my leadership skills for things like Star Trek and you know, Marvel Universe and all that, because I generally believe there's a lot of leadership things there. For example, if you look at Star Trek, I've always said the best team was Captain Kirk having so much faith in Spock because he knew he was the analytical person. He would tell him when not to do. And I think that's what I've learned along the way. That gives you success. If you place your faith in people you implicitly trust and you have that core group of people around you, success will come. And that's what I believe. Okay, so before we move forward, I've got a really important question, and that is, what is your favourite Marvel film? <laughs> oh, Black Panther, actually, by a distance. Uh, by a distance. Uh, Iron Man is a very close second, the original Iron Man, because I like you know, Robert Downey Jr. and his style. But th- those were two, I think Black Panther, because it brought a cultural element that was so far away from Hollywood. It was not just a Marvel thing. It was just that they'd done it so beautifully. So many questions, but for another time. So when you say you implicitly trust people, does that mean you meet me and you implicitly trust me? I don't have to earn or prove my trust to you. You just will. No, I don't think anybody has to prove anything. What I do is I keep an eye on what people are doing and their passion. So I personally believe that passion is a big thing about taking you forward. I like people. So, for example, there are many people I would not get along with personally, but I've got a lot of respect for their skills. And I think that dissociation needs to be very clear. What happens in the NHS, if I don't like, not saying you, but you don't like Mr. X, you go, I don't want to work with Mr. X either. And that's a problem because Mr. X might have some amazing skills or Miss Y may be amazing at the social aspect, but not very good at what you would like them to do. So I would balance that sort of factor out. So I'll give you one example and name people and they won't mind. So for example, I've kept a very close eye on what's happening in the academic circle. People are writing what they're doing. So uh, Shivani Mishra is a consultant colleague who I've seen does some really good work in type two diabetes in the young. So I've just reached out to her and gone like, look, I really like what you're doing. Tell me the bits which you're really frustrated by. That's not happening at a policy level. And she has then subsequently helped us do the narrative around it. This is what you need to have in the audit. And that's what's lacking. So that sort of faith I would have. It's not like, so I wouldn't just go on reputation. I'll have a look. But no, there is no, nobody has to prove anything to me. But I'll keep an eye out. And if they're doing good work, I will try and open up the door for them to come forward is what I would say. Okay, so you also mentioned leadership and management. And we've all read and all know and all heard that when it comes to leadership and management, they are two completely different functions. But as a leader, do you find yourself doing leadership and management? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Because you need to manage. I think so. management, I think people also forget management. A part of, big part of management is managing people's expectations. And people don't do that. So when you pick a project and you want to say where you want to get to. A, it's got to be achievable. That's the management side. You've got to pick a project. You have got to have timelines. You've got to see what you're trying to do. Leadership, I think, in this NHS has become a lot about not related to outcomes. That's a problem because you will not have faith in your leadership. If you, for example, take an example of football, Right, pretty football is lovely to watch, but at the end of the day, you've got to win some trophies or do something, you know, end of the end of the day. So what people will be looking for, and the NH is not very good at it. So if you say X or Y is a fantastic leader, and then you say, so what has he or she achieved? And then the answer is, well, they've done some policies or done some booklets. And you're going like, yeah, yeah, but how does that improve anybody's life? And I think that's where the NHS struggle. Leadership has become, I'll just create X, Y, and Z and move on. That's where I think the intersection management comes in because you've got to deliver some outcomes. That's where you need your management side as well. 
So I think one is about vision and bringing the people with you. The other one is having, and management goes back to the earlier discussion of having, having those people around you, because that's part of your management skill is, you know, try and bring in other allies who will sort of fit the mold and sort of take your vision forward. So, yeah. Okay, interesting. Do you have you ever done any leadership and management training to help you secure the roles that you have now? No, I haven't. Uh, a lot of it, my for me, has been learning the hard way. I've so it's very easy for me to talk about the success. I've got loads of failures, right? Loads, right? And you learn. I've never been disappointed by a failure. I'll take it on and go like, right, what went wrong there? I, I've read up. I, I read up a lot about books on leadership. I. I'm inspired by people who do, you know, people like Alex Ferguson in football. I would read about, you know, even people like Mourinho. They're all different leaders. They've achieved stuff. And what is it their weakness? And their, and I look around the NHS and I'll be very honest, there's a fair few people I would turn around and respect for their skills. And I would try and adapt a few things, learn about that. So that's what I've done. But I haven't done any formal leadership. And I deliberately have stayed away from it because... That's my cynical side, probably my younger side, more cynical, whereby I look people have done a lot of leadership degrees and I'm going like, oh, it's still pretty rubbish. So I'm not quite sure what you learned on the course. Why, why, why would I want to go there and do that? On the other hand, if you said there's a leadership course and Jurgen Klopp was going to come around and talk to me, I'd go like, oh, yeah, I, I want to listen. You know, I want to listen what he does. So that sort of stuff. It's so interesting. I have done leadership and management and training and I really valued it. I got my MBA in leadership and management in healthcare and I wouldn't be running my business if I hadn't have done that. I really don't believe that I would. And I think that training can offer you confidence. It definitely 100% can. Couldn't agree more. It can help you. One of the things the training has done for me is help me understand complexity theory and it's really helped me understand and appreciate the context in which I work within and I I don't think if I hadn't have been exposed to that way of thinking and the theories I I just don't think I'd have a clue I think I would be so frustrated I wouldn't get it and don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean there are some days when I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake. But I just appreciate the beast that the NHS is because of my masters. But at the same time, it is what you make it. And there's a nuance to all of the tools and techniques and models that you, you use. And it's down for you to decide when to apply them, when to adapt them and what it means to you. But that being said, we all learn in different ways. And, but if I was a young doctor looking up to you, or I wanted to, and I wanted to move into clinical leadership, the system is saying, you know, if you want to be an 8B, an 8C or whatever, you know, you do need a master's, you do need some sort of leadership training. It does take quite a strong person to be like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so just to put it in perspective, first of all, the NHS is incredibly hierarchical, the way they look at doctors and anybody who's not a doctor, right? Doctors have got far more independence. People will argue it's gone compared to before, but doctors can turn around and say, I'm not doing that, mate. I'm just not doing it, right? And you will have greater acceptance than a nurse colleague or a pharmacist saying that because they, you are going through a ranks, right? You know, nursing, going through, you know, HB, as you say, VSM, et cetera, you go, like, but have you done this and have you done that? Well, for us, it's a bit like, oh, you're a consultant. Okay, so clearly you've got leadership skills already. Well, you're sitting there going like, uh, not sure about that. And you see that. You're a registrar one day, then you become a consultant. Suddenly you're supposed to become a leader. And you go, how did that happen? I'm not quite sure. I, I quite learned about leadership there. So I think there is a big difference, unfortunately, in the, in the way nurses or pharmacists or dietitians are seen compared to doctors, right? There is a fundamental difference in that narrative, which I don't think is the right narrative. And I've been asked many times to go and do that course and this course, and I've gone like, yeah, no. And it's difficult, you're right, for a lot of people to do so. I always say is that, is it actually, are we formally saying that you have to do leadership course Y to become, to get to this position? Is it an essential criteria or a desirable criteria? I think that's a big, important difference. 
I personally don't think it's essential. That's my personal learning style, as you said. Yeah. Lots of people are not, I would like to sit down and go through some structures and theories and understanding. For me, I think I have learned on the job, right? That's, you could turn around and say that's not necessarily the best way to do it. But whenever people have asked me a question, just say, but you haven't done a leadership course, what do you think? And I always go like, but you can look at my outcomes. That's fine. At the end of the day, you can define me by my outcomes. So my advice to people would be, you do what suits your style and the politics. That would my, it's not just the style, it's the politics. Because if you really, let's say you are somebody in a band 8A role, right? And you want to be a VSM very senior manager in the NHS, you might even think harboring desires of becoming a chief operating officer, chief exec, whatever. And they are saying to you, we think you can be, but without having the degree X, you can't be that. Well, that's the political side of it. And then I think you should go and do it because you should not have your ambition crushed by somebody's tick box to so do the tick box. But if you're in a position where it's not an essential criteria and you feel comfortable where you are, then you progress as you are. Okay, so I want to ask you about influencing. So whether that be at a lower level or a higher level when you're, you may be, I'm in primary care, so it may be you are trying to influence your practices or you are at ICS director level and you are trying to influence the system. Are the skills required to influence at a lower and higher level the same or are they different I don't think they are different but I've been challenged on it and so let's ask let's ask an expert what what do you think I I absolutely will say that my style never changes if I'm speaking to a medical student a FY2 doctor on the ward or the chief exec of a trust or the ICS CEO my style does not change at all um, I've got a simple theory that there are four groups of people you will meet in life. And I think that's not just, uh, you know, anything in work, that's just life. There'll be group A who just like you, right? It doesn't matter what you do. And normally in life, you start that with generally, that being your mum. you know, you do whatever you do and they'll oh, it's brilliant. My, my child is the best in the world and they've done really well, right? And you will find people in life, in work, who really believe in you. You do something and they go, hey, you don't have to convince me. I know it's you, it's, of course it's going to be good. I'm right behind you. So you don't have to spend any time on them. Then you've got group two, which is a big group in the NHS, which, who are a bit like, uh, I've heard a little bit about you, but I'm not quite sure about you. So if you can show me what you've done, I'll come around. Let's talk in an adult way. And he said, look, I've done this in the past. I think we can do this. Let's take it forward. That's a big group of people. Then you've got group three, who basically are so bored and so tired with life and everything else is around there just happening. They're like, ah, oh, God, just... Uh, why am I doing this again? Right, okay, I'll just go with the crowd or whatever's going on, etc. So, and they're also the ones who may or may not like you and over the course of time just gives you some grudging respect and moves on, right? The final group are the ones who just don't like you and could be because of your personality, could be because of your sex, could be because of their prejudice, could be because of your color. They just do not like you. doesn't matter what you do. And I think the problem that we have in influencing is that we spend a truckload of time trying to convince group four. That's what we do. It's natural, isn't it? You don't want to be not liked. Somebody's basically challenging you because you're a woman. You're doubly fired up to prove to them, do you know what? Sit down. I want to show you that I'm really good. The problem is their prejudice may be so strong. It doesn't matter how much effort you put into it. They're never going to convince. So my tip for always has been your biggest group is group two, actually, in the NHS, who are a lot who are like, uh, I don't know what you are. So they don't fundamentally change. And I say this, so for example, when I did the work around technology, people always believed that I was going around having trenched warfares with every single CCG in the country. Not true. 70% of the CCG were on board. They came along. They were group two. They were like, show us a bit more data path. But I know it costs a lot, but come on, let, let, let's see. Does it really help people with diabetes? It was 30% who basically said, I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it, Partha, with my dead body. One person said, this conversation is closed. And so that's when we brought in a mandate. So for them, that's where I think it goes, it becomes very different. Because if you're in a higher role, that's where you need to somehow bring in a bit of a punch or you need to walk away. Because if the bigger picture is these people don't like you because of whatever, 
then don't spend too much time on it because they will either need a mandate or you need to walk away from that place because you are not doing yourself any good. That's the what I talk about influencing is that always have in your mind, which group does this person fall in? How far do you push before you go like this? There's no convincing this person. Okay, so if you are not in a position to drive, push, facilitate the mandate, and you're working with group two, and they need convincing, and some of them don't like you, some of a bit negative, what is the step? What's the next step? So the bit in between is what I call the critical level. How much of the, the number of people you're trying to influence, there's a tipping point whereby that people do not matter anymore because you've got the majority on your side. You've tipped the balance in your favor, right? And I think it's interesting because you, the groups that I talk about, they start shifting the more you progress in your life. Because there's a lot of people from group two who become your group one because they really believe in you, because you've done something. And they go, like, ah, yeah, I know Tara from before. She's done really good stuff. Another stuff from her, let's look at it. There are your group one. So I think that's what I would say is how it progresses. So when it comes to a point where, the, where you can't really mandate, I think the decision point then for you is that, do I need somebody higher up, number one, or do I need to walk away from this, even though you might accept that's probably not, that's probably a failure, all right? Or do you use other people in that group too who may be very influential to convince enough numbers to tip over, okay? So group three, ironically, thereby has an interesting role because they don't need convincing. They're just tired, bored, life is too rubbish. But you might need them to bolster up your numbers to get the tipping point. Because once you isolate group four out, right, that's when you're in play because you've done your uh, major job is what I would say. So in short, what I say is that focus all your work on those people who just need a bit more evidence, a bit more work. Try as hard as you can to get the tipping point. But there are some things which you might need to walk away from because you can't get everything you need. And entrepreneurs or people who do a lot of work in technology will tell you that they're caught in that vicious cycle. It's always going like, here's something. And they go like, where's the evidence? They go like, well, if you don't give me my chance, how am I going to collect my evidence? And you go round and round and round in circles till you give up. That's what happens a lot. <laughs> okay, so last point in this, where you mentioned the next step is to identify somebody who can help you. Sometimes there is an inequity in that because if we've got, you know, a, a bit of a connection because you've been on the podcast and we've both mentioned Rachel Moses and I've been in conversations where it's like, we sh does it always have to be who knows who, who knows who? to be able to get the job done and get things over the line because my connections may put somebody else at a disadvantage. True, but that's also part of your leadership skill. It is part of the communication networking, right? It's not like me and Rachel went out for a drink, right? It was Rachel just contact me on Twitter and say, can I have a chat? So I think what leaders, you know, I was not in the position I'm five years later, but what I, one thing I always said to myself, if I ever get to a position I'll always keep the door open for people. And I think that's what I say to many colleagues. There are people out there, all they need is five minutes with you. Five minutes. Give them five minutes for, because for them, that five minutes is gold because they're desperate to have that point of contact. And I think I say this to a lot of people. It goes back to the concept of that ladder thing. Don't pull the ladder up. Yeah. And I think when you say about the networking thing, we need to give the opportunity for people to network with us. Why not? So in the diabetes world, me and Jonathan, my colleague, we are very clear about having public forums with clinicians, with policymakers and patients come and talk to us. And I think going back to your point, yes, it's about the who knows who, but unless you create that sort of or facilitate that level, then you will never be able to spread out because it, there will always be a part of that. It's not like, you know, I haven't met you, met you, but we are talking. How did that happen? That's because Rachel made the contact. That's how things flourish and go forward. So I'm not against that by any means whatsoever. I think senior leaders have got a big role as they go into those positions to open the doors up for people to be able to network. And even if it's a simple word to say, look, guys, I don't think this will fly. I really don't think the narrative is there at the present moment in the system. So stop them investing the time or basically give them advice not to invest their time and effort into something which might sort of crash and burn. Okay, so another kind of connection point we've got in common 
and that is my youngest daughter Talia has got type 1 diabetes so could you share with like your average mum like me or a carer or a member of the public what are the latest developments happening behind the scenes when it comes to type 1 diabetes? So for me type 1 diabetes has always sat on three pillars which is better self-management, better peer support and better access to trained care, trained professionals, right? Those are the three pillars. And what the NHS typically does is a lot of time into number three, let's get more doctors and more nurses and more this and more that. Problem is you don't have enough of them, right? So my fundamental philosophy has been, let's get self-management better. How do you do that? Technology, whatever you want to do. And I think for the average Joe, the important thing to remember is that type 1 diabetes has got three parts in the sense of, you prick your fingers, you look at your glucose number, then you have to make some mental maths, what to do with that number. And then you give yourself some insulin to tackle that number because it's higher than normal. Now, what I think we need to do is make all that process as simple as possible. So you move away from having to prick your finger to basically becoming non-invasive. So you're saying that, hey, listen, it comes up on my phone. How magical is that? So to a lot of average Joe, that's a bit like Star Trek. And you go like, yes, it is. But that's advancement. Hey, listen, in the 1970s, we used to dip people's urine. So this is way ahead. So that's step one. Then you go to a point where you go like, hey, listen, wouldn't it be lovely if all those calculations that the mother and the father or people are having to do would be done by a computer, by an algorithm? Wouldn't it be lovely? That comes your closed loops and the algorithms or AKA the so-called artificial pancreas. And then you've got a delivery system like a pump giving you the insulin. So what are you doing? You're taking away the things which make life more difficult. You can't take away the stigma. You work towards improving society. You can't take away the changes, you know, hormonal changes, life changes, social changes. You can try and make it easier. So for me, type one diabetes, let's give people all the tools they can to self-manage it better, give them more peaceful nights. I think it's important. So you're not having hypos, you know, blood glucose dropping and parents being awake at night. And the biggest feedback I've had in doing this trial that we're doing with closed loops is parents coming in saying, I've had a good night's sleep. And that's big. That's huge. That's such a quality of life thing. So I think that's where we are going. And what I want, we are not very far off from that, is that basically type 1 diabetes should have two steps, which is you get diagnosed, you should have a non-invasive glucose sensor so you don't have to prick your fingers. And if that doesn't work to bring everything under control, you should have a artificial pancreas of what science can provide. That's it. There should be no other process. And we're not very far off from that, to be honest. And finally, the big thing that we're working on is peer support, because I think that's really underrated and underplayed in the NHS. We don't have time as professionals. So, well, let's put you in touch with somebody who lives with it all the time. You know, you will find fantastic tips from each other. So I think that's what we have been working on over the last four or five years. And hopefully the culmination should come next year and uh, we should complete the journey on that set. We shall see. So when you say artificial pancreas and that we're not too far off, what do you mean? So I, I use the words artificial pancreas with the added addendum so-called because it's not quite the artificial. Artificial pancreas sounds like it will do everything for you, just like yeah. the pancreas does it for it. It's not. It's not quite there yet because you I still see. have to do some calculations. You still have a machine attached to you. OK, now it's we are in a position whereby we are collecting the data and the evidence and then giving it to NICE to turn around and hopefully say, just like they've done now recently with the continuous glucose monitors, that this should be available for everybody with type one. So that's what we're expecting it to happen in 2023 if all our plans go to play. So the idea would be that everybody should have access to those. So do you have a say in how industry partners with the NHS? So we, I say we, Talia, my daughter, she is on Dexcom and we started on Libra and Libra was really, really good. And my understanding is everybody will have the opportunity to have Libra moving forwards. So we have we have basically opened the doors up to everybody. That's what we've done now. So what we have said is that there should be a full list of options available for every area. The parents or in the case of an adult, the individual should be able to have choice about all the devices available and they can pick what they want. That's the way it should be. So you should have the options of a Dexcom and a Medtronic and, a, and an Abbott, all of those on the table for you to go like, do you know what I read about this? Okay, and I think I want that because that for me, that suits me better. 
And I think that's what it should be. The reason we have held it off so far is because the price differentials and what has now happened because of creating the market pressure, every company is now shifting so that we can have that price you know, for the NHS to have that sort of equity whereby you turn around and say, so over the last three years, that's what it's resulted in. You know, prices, prices have changed dramatically. And what we say to the companies is that I understand your financial pressures, but unfortunately, this is the NHS where it's all public funded. It's not an insurance based or a half and half system like Europe or anywhere else. So we need some help from you guys as well, which is where the present situation comes from. So at the moment, if all goes well in the next few months, it should be open to everybody, everybody to display their wares and what we've said to companies, you can slug it out as to who wants to have the market, convince the people. Okay, cool. I'll definitely be watching this space. So you mentioned you've got another role where you're looking at raising the profile and addressing the racism that happens within the NHS. Can you tell us more about that one, please? Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's one of those things uh, which um, always makes me smile, Riley, because there, as I said, there's always groups of people who will, you know, if you say to them there is racism or sexism or anyism, right, in the NHS, they'll go like, really? No, no, I've never seen that. And you go like, well, just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And then they'll come, well, but, but, but how can you say that about staff? The NHS staff are amazing, which comes from the whole belief that somehow the NHS staff are not part of society, right? They are. And I've always said this, and there's now plenty of evidence to support that, NHS staff has got as much sexism, homophobia, racism in them as society, full stop. And if anybody doesn't know that or recognise that, they're just not looking around enough or not listening to colleagues who are going through it, Okay. So the data set that we did, so there's a wider data set, which is about the whole NHS, all staff, nursing staff. So if you take, for example, nursing colleagues, there's a very clear problem in senior leadership posts, right? There's a massive bottleneck in band five, band six. And then as you progress, it becomes more and more white. So as I say, uh, there is a problem there. So either we are saying that people who are not white of any color, whether you're black, or South Asian, whatever, either you're not qualified enough or we have a problem or there's a bias. You, you cannot explain it otherwise. So my role is in the medical side of things because the first time medicine looked at what's going on because, you know, the believe doctors are better, doctors are some, you know, of course we are saintly beings who have no such problem or ism in our body. Guess what? The data shows we've got all of those, right? So referral to regulatory bodies, there's a bias. Uh, getting senior leadership positions, there is a bias. Uh, board positions, there is a bias. I'll give you one simple example. I work for NHS England. I've said this publicly. Have a look at the NHS England executive board. Everybody's white, right? So 40% of the medical staff are uh, non-white, South Asian, Black. And racism, again, I think it's important to say there's not just about white versus non-white. Again, don't make that mistake. And I've learned, I've seen enough this problem about the whole concept around anti-blackness, right? There's an issue around from South Asian community towards black communities. It's it's all throughout. So those are the areas that I'm, I've just started the role. I'm going to tackle a few things. We're going to try and bring in some, you know, blind panels, some variations of what we call the Rooney rule. We're going to experiment a few things, do some standardization around training, try and make people understand. So and let's see whether we can change the data. But we have a problem. And I think the main thing is for the NHS to accept they have a problem. It's reflected in patient outcomes as well. So it's not just about the staff. Uh, and I think that, that needs to be tackled. So. Since starting this role, what have you learned about yourself? What biases do you have? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, things like, uh, for example, you would you go into, I think it's quite difficult to challenge your own bias. So my own bias, I would say that. So you would have, an, you know, the community where I've grown up, South Asian community, right? Uh, there's a lot of colorism right? Even there about women who are fair skin, adverts in newspapers, etc. That translates more and more into that view they have about people who are Black, right? And our, my own community. And I would say when I was younger, I would be part of those conversations and you would smile and laugh, etc. I think as you grow into this role, you listen to people's experience, you go like, actually, it's as bad as uh, I would expect that from anybody who's white. Why is that different? It's not different at all. So I think those things are a big, important part of you understanding that. And I think also saying that equality is not just about color, right? So lived experience is a very important thing. Sexism, 
is a huge problem in the NHS. Uh, and I think I'm seeing, so I would be in the like, yeah, yes, there is, but is it really that bad? Okay. And I've now picked up a lot of cases when you're sitting there going like, oh my Lord, that should be with the police. Not, this is not a discussion point. What, why are we discussing this? And, <laughs> and you, you, that is a, that's a massive challenge of your own view where you go like, well, you know, and I would do the same thing. You know, I've just said at the beginning, you talk about racism, I'm just saying, yeah, I've got friends who are women and you know, they seem to be okay. You know, surely, you know, it's not that sexist, the NHS. And then you see more and more and go like, okay, my Lord, there is a lot of problem around here. So I think those are the things you learn in this role. I think the last, well, how long have I done this role for? Six, seven months. That's been a big, steep learning curve. I think picking, I must say, I've been taken aback by the level at some, some cases where you go like, just because it doesn't happen in my own friend circles. And it goes back to the point, you pick your own friend circles based on, certain characteristics right and thereby you don't see it and then you're going out and going like okay wow right there's, there's a lot of things to tackle here so yeah those have been interesting I would say. Okay so thinking about how you spend your time how do you balance the roles that you've got and your personal life? Yeah so I'm very clear about my lines my tram lines are very very sharp so for example I have three days at work There'll be a bit of intermingling with the other national work. I've got one full day, which is diabetes, and one full day where I do the other role. Okay, there'll be a bit of intermingling, but my my work finishes when it finishes. So weekends, I'm very clear about not working, right? Unless there's something, you know, obviously on the rota or whatever. But I, I will not do meetings or I'll not do, uh, I'm very clear about my family. It's very important. My friends are very important. I need downtime. I need, and that is one big piece of advice I keep on saying to people. If you burn out, you will not help anybody else. And the NHS does, will not stand by you if you burn out. So you have to look after you, even though it feels like, and we have that inbuilt in us, isn't it? It's like that, that hero concept and the martyr things like, I will stay on till eight. And I'll see everybody. And you're going like, well, okay, that might have helped one person, but you are down now because of that. So I'm very, very clear about my tram lines. Very clear. It's taken me a long time to do that. But yeah, I'm very clear about that job has ended. I will pick this up on Monday. Thank you. And it's done. So yeah. Do you ever clear your to-do list? Always. Always. Do you? Oh, yes. How? Always. I So... I've got a to-do list. I've got a to-do list, which is every month I do a to-do list, which might be a rollover of some of them. And I tick yeah. them off and it's done. I've got a to-do list every weekend, right? Which is family stuff. And even stuff like I'll sit down with a son and do his exam studies or whatever. But I've got another list, which is in my email. It's called pending projects, right? And I always make sure in the evenings before I sit down for a movie and stuff, I will pick those up and I'll finish those. There'll be some which will roll over because they're bigger. So, for example, I've got very clear ideas about what I want to do with the racism side of things. So that's a list that will carry on, but it's got subparts to it, which I'll tick off. So I'm very methodical about having lists and spreadsheets about how it's going as going green and stuff like that. So, no, I always clear my to-do list. Always. I don't take on too many projects. I will always finish. At maximum, I would do is two projects, three max at a time. But I will never take on a fourth unless one is off the list. So that's the way I handle my thing. If the, the listeners could see my face, I'm like, mm. <laughs> okay, I need to, I'll, this is going to be one of the podcasts I listen back to. <laughs> Like, people always go like how have you done so many things it's because i never take on too many i finish a little thing yeah. and then i'll so for example if i give you an example just going back to type 1 diabetes i could have touched closed loops on the work i didn't even touch it till libra was finished people always ask me i had lots of criticism Arthur, why only libra why not dexcom and i've always yeah. said why not dexcom because <laughs> just give me time so right now so Dexcom, we rolled it across to every pregnant woman with type one. Now we're going to give it to children. And I've said, it's about giving faith to the system that that can be done. And then we do that. You have more. So the pregnancy story was so quick. 
we got to 98% of the population in about like six months flat because everybody went like, oh, this can be done. I was like, of course. It can. So I think I'm, I'm, I always say about pick them, move on, pick them, move on. And you get more. So going back to those groups, you get more and more people in group one who are like, yeah, Partha, yeah, let's do it. Let's do another project. And you're like, okay. So that's what I say. I like that. So you pick one, then move on. And I think there's something about not caring so deeply when you get a less favourable reaction when you do say no. But really, so let me let me give you an example. Right now, what's happening? So type, with the diabetes, I, I had that for the first three, four. Now you've got people, ah, I can see. And I always used to use a term when I did the Libra work. I said, this is the tip of the spear. If this goes in, the whole thing goes in. Trust me on this one. So I had lots of people going, no, but you should do Dexcom, you should do pumps. And I'm like going, I will, just give it time. Right now we're in a position where NICE are going like, oh, everybody should have a CGM. We're going to work out the process, how to get that, fine. But so now Dexcom is in the market. We're having deals with Dexcom. We're talking about pricing. They're excited. Everything's great. Same thing is happening with racism thing. People are going, why are you part of not tackling every individual? And you're basically like going in there with guns and you know, I go like, guys, right, just relax. Let's tackle one thing at a time. It will happen. We're not going to tackle racism in the NHS within two years. That's not the way. This is what, 50, 60, 70 centuries stuff, right? Give it time. So I always say, I do use the word tip of the spare a lot. It's like got to open up the chink to push it through. And so that's what I tend to do. I do. I do agree. But I also see both sides. And I think when it comes to racism, you know, pick one and then move on. That's really hard when people are really, really struggling. And they're, yeah, they're really, really struggling. And they want their issue to be resolved. They don't want to feel like you're not the tip of the spear. You can wait. Oh, 100%. 100%. I, I pick up conversations quite regularly with people who have been through, and some of the cases are shocking. So what I say to everybody, so we have had a few conversations with chief execs. We've called up chief execs saying this is what's happened from your staff, etc. But I understand fully when people are like, I want something doing because my career has gone down the chute. They really victimized me. And there's no other reason apart from the fact that this is the color of my skin. And it's very clear, right? Uh, and I fully appreciate that. So uh, I understand. So I always try and give a sympathetic ear or empathetic ear as much as possible. Just look, I can listen, but system change will take time. Some cases we will step in and try and help. So no, I, I fully appreciate when people say, People want things to be addressed as soon as, right? Rather than, and when it's, as you said, when it's hurting you individually, you're less fussed about the system. You, you want your thing to be tagged, quite rightly yeah. too. For, for a mum who wants a Dexcom, my view that, hey, listen, give me time. I will get you to there. The view is that, yeah, but I'm struggling and my child is struggling now, right? I can understand what you're doing. But so I think that is understandable. So that's what you face in the, in the national role. So. Fine. Okay, to wrap up, please could you share your leadership style in three words? Um, I would say it's um, so three words. I would say I flair. I try and bring a lot of flair to it, right? Yeah, like um, I would say it's very focused. So it's flair, definitely focused, because I wouldn't, I'm very clear as to what I want to get to. You know, I do the leadership. And um, I think it's, hing I don't know whether the, what's the word for it, but I like to, I don't know what is exactly the word. It's very uh, akin to, if you're with me, right? If you follow my vision, we'll do this together. But if you're not with me, then don't stand in front of me. So there's a hard edge to it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think what I what I would do is that I will take you on if you're obstructing me because I'm doing this for patients. So even right now, when the nice thing has come out about, around CGM, my very clear message to everybody has been, don't stand in the way. Find your time, but do not stand in the way. So I think that probably would be my style, I would say. But I, yeah, I like to bring my own flair and charisma, a bit of Bollywood and all that sort of stuff <laughs> into it, I suppose. Okay, so when it comes to decision-making in the NHS, what do you wish the general public 
could kind of better appreciate and understand? Um, what I wish they would understand is the how taxpayers' money is used, okay? And this is a very difficult thing to do because every individual will, and quite rightly, focus on the particular aspect that's affecting them. If it's a cancer, if it's a heart, if it's your, you know, it's your son, your child, your dad, your mom, and it's that bit you want focused on. So what I would like people to understand is that we cannot get everything, but change will take time as well. So when people see something in the States, they will go, why can't I have that? And you go like, you can, but to do that without any evidence and everybody behind it, I'll have to stop something else. And I think that's the bit that people probably, I think a lot of people do understand, if I'm very honest, people do understand that there's a problem. I mean, as I said, you know, I've done a lot of work in the diabetes sector and I've had nothing but mostly lots of love and blessings from so many people with type 1 diabetes, their parents, their carers and all that. People appreciate that it's tough. But I, I think more of, of the narrative from the media needs to be better. Because the narrative seems to be there's enough money in the system, crack on. Or then it is bust, we need to change the model. I don't think it does need to change the model. I, I really don't think it does. It's a very fair system, but it does need to change the way it thinks and operates, I would say. Thank you so much. Time has flown by. You definitely have to come back. Which is the best platform, social media platform to catch you on? Uh, Twitter. Twitter, I do a lot. Facebook, I do a lot nowadays as well. Insta from time to time. So those are the three, I would say. Uh, yeah. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Partha S. Carr. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for all the questions and the time. <laughs> so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.